as Blake comes and shares a prayer with us and, and, and more. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are a great and mighty God, and, and we are so thankful to be able to come into your throne room today and to worship you. God, as we go through this worship service today, help us and remind us that it's not about us, but it's all about you and your glory. And uh, <clears throat> again, what a privilege it is to be able to do that. Father God, I pray for the folks in this room. I, I thank you for their willingness to be here today to worship you as well. And Father God, if there's a person in this room that does not know you personally, may today be their day of salvation. May the word of God prick their hearts today, Father God, and be drawn closer into a relationship with you. So God, we give you this time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, just a couple of quick words. Today is our kickoff day for uh, Love Thy Neighbor. And uh, Love Thy Neighbor this week will be uh, consisting of, of painting interior, painting exterior, some landscaping, and some other things. We'll be at North Elementary uh, painting the school there and uh, painting a, a home and doing some landscaping. So if you have signed up, that's great. If you've not signed up, it is not too late to be a part of this. I'll be out in the Mission Center after this and answer any questions you may have. But there's other things going on, like today at 4 o'clock. If you are available, Jeffrey's going to be teaching a class called, we just named it, Sharing the Gospel. Um, and uh, how, how could you go wrong with that, right? And so we'll be in meeting room A and B at 4 o'clock. If you have ever been through a, a, a witnessing class or anything like that, it's nothing like it. And so just come again at 4, and uh, we're going to hopefully teach you how to do it relationally. Uh, you're invited to do that. Even if you're not being part of Love Thy Neighbor, come be a part of that at 4 o'clock. Also, on uh, Wednesday night, uh, we are going to canvas our neighborhoods in our community for VBS. And again, if you cannot come and be a part of the week, that's okay. Come Wednesday night and uh, jump in at dinner at 5 and going out at 6 to uh, be a part of our community. Uh, again, Love Thy Neighbor is kicking off. If you cannot give the week and can just give one day or half a day, whatever it is, I'll be able to answer those questions uh, in the Mission Center after this. So hope you can be a part of it, and to God be the glory. Amen. This is going to be an exciting week, folks. It's the first time our church has embarked on something like this, and uh, it's going to be a great, great opportunity to show the love of Jesus to our community. Amen. So I hope everybody can be a part of that. And if you, if you can't be, obviously many of us can't be, but if you can't be, be in prayer. Uh, because it will have a huge impact on this community we are praying. Amen? So, uh, hey, as we continue on with uh, Psalm 2, um, we start with the passage that says, Why do the nations rage? By the way, the psalmist did not know. It, it wasn't because he didn't know the answer to that. <laughs> right? Uh, we know sinful nature. But that's what this song uh, reminds us, and it reminds us of the answer, the Ancient of Days.
before you now, and it's easy to read Psalm um, 2 and think about uh, horrible nations, horrible leaders, uh, the, the, the Stalins and the Hitlers of the world, but Lord, in our hearts, we know because of our sinful nature, we too rage against you, and we don't want you to be in complete control, but yet you are. And so, Lord, we pray that we would uh, admit our sins, confess our sins, fall before your feet, and honor you as sovereign king. Lord, we want to do that in every area of our life, but we certainly want to do that now 
as we give. And uh, Lord, we pray that each and every uh, dime given would, would just go toward furthering the kingdom and reaching men and women, boys and girls. We especially pray, Lord, again, for this week as we reach out to our community through Love Thy Neighbor. And uh, Lord, we just pray for uh, your, your grace to go through this community like never before. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Free. 
invite you to sing this next song with us. You know, it said that um, what we think about God is one of the most important things about us. And this song is just a declaration of who he is and what he's done. Uh, this is our God. walls that we called sin and shame they were like prisons that we couldn't escape but he came and he died and he rose those walls are rubble now remember those giants we called death and grave they were like mountains that stood in our way But he came and he died and he rose Those giants are dead now
It seemed like to me that the people on stage believed what they were singing. Makes a difference, doesn't it? When you have been moved in your affections to glorify the Lord. And what a great song. All the way around, the songs today have set our hearts and minds on Psalm 2. I pray for that reality in your own life. And so that today we're going to talk about take refuge in the sun. So Psalm 2, if you'll make your way there. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to find the Psalms, do you? Remember, just split it down the middle. In your scriptures, you're going to come close. You may jog toward Proverbs or toward Job, but you'll find it eventually. Psalm Two. The Bible says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The NAS says he scoffs. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Are you hanging on to the hope? That Christ's kingdom will prevail in every nation. Are you? Or are you allowing pessimism to affect you? Yahweh in this psalm commands all nations to submit to the Son. One day, maybe very soon, I hope it's very soon, Christ will return. But he's going to return to judge. And will he find us holding out against him? Or will he find us worshiping and serving Christ? The psalm makes it unequivocally clear that eternal destiny is linked to the Lord Jesus Christ. And him alone. There's nothing more important for us this morning than our answer to the question, What have we done with the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think of Christ? What is your response to the biblical claims of Christ? What is your response to what Psalm 2 says about Christ? Furthermore, the entire Bible. There's nothing this morning more important 
than your relationship with Jesus Christ. Whatever the opposition, the psalm tells us that no human power can nullify or undo the divine purpose. Nothing can. Since this world is still in opposition to Christ, we need to concentrate on two things. Gospel preaching and praying for the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Right? That's what we should be praying for. So Psalm 2 tells us about the glorious Son, the Messiah, His anointed, who is King over all. The Lord Jesus Christ at this very moment is seated at the right hand of the Father and He reigns. He's not waiting to reign. Jesus Christ reigns. Scholars call Psalm 2 a coronation psalm. There's no superscription. I told you early on when we started studying psalms through the summer that the superscriptions, I believe, as many others do, they would actually be verse 1. So like Psalm 3, for instance, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. The Masoretic text, I don't want to confuse you, but let's just say in the Hebrew, that's verse 1. But when you get to the English, verse 1 is, O Lord, how many are my foes? This psalm, Psalm 2, does not have a superscription at all. But who wrote Psalm 2? Well, according to Acts chapter 4, verse 25, Luke gives the credit to David for having written Psalm 2. So this psalm is a psalm that is pointing, pointing to David's greater son. Okay, so the psalm was written, again, as a coronation psalm for kings who would sit on David's throne after him. For instance, Solomon, right? But no human, no merely human king could have ever fulfilled the details of Psalm 2. The details of this psalm could only be fulfilled by David's greater son born of the Virgin Mary. So this psalm points us clearly to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other fulfillment of this psalm. I say that because I hope you understand that we're not waiting for a Messiah. The tragedy of the belief of Jews who believe that there is a coming Messiah and Jesus of Nazareth was not him. Well, the Bible expressly teaches us that the fulfillment of this psalm is the Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly. So there is no other fulfillment of this psalm. He's the Christ, the greater son of David, and also David's Lord, right? Psalm 2 is quoted in the New Testament four times, Acts 4, Acts 13, and twice in the book of Hebrews. I'm not going to go to Hebrews yet because we're going to start that, what did I say, September 24th. That's the plan, and we'll certainly look at those texts. But the New Testament also makes, look, no less than 14 references to this psalm. Isn't that amazing? Now, the ultimate blessed man of Psalm 1 is who? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that could ever be perfectly aligned with the will of the Father, like Psalm 1 tells us. The anointed king who is declared to be the Son of God in Psalm 2 is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Psalm 1 shows the way of the righteous, and Psalm 2 shows the victory of the Messiah and the refuge that you must take in order to have righteousness. So Psalm 2 shows the utter folly of rebelling against God's word, hear this, and God's anointed. But also the blessedness of submitting to the Son 
and finding refuge in him alone. Again, there are only two categories of people in this world. We said it in Psalm 1. It's true in Psalm 2. There's only two categories. Those who are presently rebelling against Christ and those who are presently submitting to Christ. Now, the good thing about Psalm 2 is it divides nicely for us into four stanzas and our four strophes. And let's walk through this psalm. Are you ready? Listen fast and I'll preach fast. Okay? If I look at you and you look like you're sleeping on me, I'm going to start over. Okay? So the strophes, listen to it. Here's the way I've worded them to help you grasp what the text is saying. In verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 2, see the utter folly of going to war against the Christ. Isn't that clear from verses 1 through 3? Now, David mentioned this. Why is not some kind of explanation of, oh, the Lord's not sure why people would actually rail against him. It's actually an interrogative of utter amazement. So the nations are raging and the peoples are devising a vain thing. The kings take their stand against Yahweh and his anointed and the psalmist is crying out, why would you do this? Beginning with, the gen with Genesis, our God has promised that a redeemer would come into this world. And seeing that reality in Psalm 2 brought up again. So as scripture rolls on, as time unfolds, as history rolls on, God begins to paint that portrait clearer and clearer from us that it's our Savior. I, I can't go into all of the detail here. But uh, you should. Genesis 3.15, in other words, starts it. He will bruise your heel, but you shall crush his head. Uh, we call that the first gleams of the gospel. And then in Genesis 12.1-3, we learn that he will come from Abraham. And then in Genesis 49.10, we learn that he will be of the tribe of Judah, and the scepter shall not depart until peace comes. In Deuteronomy 18.15, he will be the prophet greater than Moses. In 2 Samuel 7, 15 through 16, he will be the son of David and the son of God whose throne and kingdom will last forever. James Hamilton says, the Lord means to reestablish his dominion over his defiled cosmic temple through the vice regency of a new Adam. Right? 1 Corinthians. Seed of woman, seed of Abraham, Seed of Judah, seed of David. The rulers of that day reject what God says in his word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Whereas the blessed man is delighting in the word of God, the one who's contriving against God and he's in opposition to God will not accept what the word of God says about morality, Nonetheless, the Lord Jesus Christ. Correct? So, they reject morality the way the Lord defines it. So Psalm 2 reminds us that the unbelieving world hates Christ. Jesus says to us, don't think it's strange when the world hates you because before it hated you, it hated me. That's what the Bible says. The unbelieving world strategizes against God. The unbelieving world stands in direct opposition. Now we have to say, culturally speaking, this was the case in David's day, right? There were hostile nations surrounding Israel who opposed the one true God. And in opposing him, they were also opposing the anointed one. They were opposing Christ. 
the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the divine representation, the king himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, was the one they were opposing. So the nations are meditating. The blessed person is meditating on the Torah. However, those hostile against God are also meditating on something. Do you know it's the same word in the Hebrew for plot a vain thing. It's the same word used for Psalm uh, two, 1 verse 2 of meditating on the word of God. So while we're meditating on the word, accepting the truth regarding our God, the world is in opposition against God and they're meditating on a vain thing. They're plotting against our God. Like raging waves of the sea during a storm, the peoples of the earth in a wild rage conspire against the Lord. Again, Hamilton notes, the bonds and ropes that the rulers want to tear off and cast away, in chapter 2, verse 2, are to be understood as Yahweh's promises, regulations in the Torah. Listen to this. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing. Let us burst their bonds apart. Cast away the cords from us. Don't y'all understand that God's character is communicated and revealed through his word? The Bible is not a picture book. It is a word book. Everything about God's character that he is going to reveal to you as your God comes from his word. That's how you get it. So, so to plot against the word of God is to plot against God. To plot against the word of God and God in a generic sense in people's minds, is to plot against, in reality, the Lord's anointed. The Lord Jesus Christ. So our God's character is communicated. It's revealed through His Word. And His character ensures that His Word will always be kept. It will always be kept. So clearly the path of life is the way of accepting the Lord's rule and authority. And rejoicing in the promises given in his word. That's the path of life. One could argue that God's ultimate goal, goal, right? The center of biblical theology is for our God to display his character. And he's done that most clearly in giving you the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. That's stunning mercy. And God has accomplished his showing forth of His glory by saving you through His Son. It's the ultimate picture of the glory of God. However, the path of destruction is the path of rejecting the Lord's declaration of what is right and what is wrong, rejecting His commands, and going to war against the King that Yahweh has established, just as He promised. So the apostles understood this psalm, and they quoted in Acts. Let's take a look at it. Here's what the book of Acts would tell us regarding this psalm. Acts chapter 4. This is Peter preaching the word. Verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Why? Do the Gentiles rage? And why do the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together 
against the Lord and against his anointed. Now look, verse 27 of chapter 4. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, in whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Check this out. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So who do they give the credit for for plotting a vain thing? Herod? Pontius Pilate? But who's ultimately in control? Say it loud. God is in control to do whatever his hand allowed to take place. So I make this known to you that that's what's going on when Peter quotes it. He sees the Herods and the Pontius Pilates of the world as the ones who are plotting that vain thing and fulfilling Psalm 2. So, in our day, are there rulers of nations who hate God in the Bible? Our own leaders! Right? Let's be honest. In our day, that's what's going on. They're inhumane, they're insane, they're barbaric, they're opponents of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, that's, that's, too, that's stiff. If you hate the Word of God, then you hate God. That's not too stiff. I'm telling you what the text says. So they don't want to hear anything about what God has to say. Needless to say, especially when it comes to who Jesus Christ is. So, how do we know who they are? How do we know who the ones in this world that are opponents against God? How do we know this clearly? Well, it's the, it's the ones that take their stand against God's people. Right? It's the ones who take a stand against the people of God. And that's never changed. That case, in that case of opposition against the people of God, things have not changed. We can say today, why do the nations rage? It is not just the rulers of the earth. It's also angry, well-organized opposition by, if you want to call it, the new atheists of the world who think they have discovered some kind of new argument to disprove God. Hmm. It is by hippie college professors who think they are smarter than God. By the way, young people, watch out for hippie college professors who appear to be cool, but at the core, they hate God. Don't be stupid. Make sure you got your theological mind at least intact with your heart and affections when you hear these hippie college professors give you their understanding of what reality is, which is nothing apart from God, right? So, at the core, they hate God. This is seen in what one writer calls the paganizing of our culture. Here are some of the modern plotting of those who oppose and reject God in their lives. Remember, when you, address, when you reject the word, you are rejecting God. When you... Re when you reject what the Bible reveals to us about the character of God, you are rejecting God. Let me give you a couple of those things. Modern plotting of those who oppose and reject God in their lives. The banning of the Bible reading in our schools. Prayer in public assemblies has been diminished or eliminated. Abortion. That is direct opposition and hatred to God and His Word. No other way around it. Not to say that God doesn't forgive. Let me always say that. God forgives. But abortion opposes God and his word. Who gives life. Clearly. Let's make clear that particular understanding. Feminism 
attacking biblical marriage and family. Pornography opposes the Word of God. Homosexuality, opposition against the Word of God and our God who created them male and female and brought the two of them together as one. As a matter of fact, think about this folks, the entire biblical understanding is the bridegroom coming after the bride. So you demolish the Bible when you say homosexuality or homosexual marriage is okay. It's not okay. It's against God and His Word. Transgenderism. Against God and against His Word. Period. So, alright, you ready? Gambling. Be careful. Be careful with it. I know you think, well, auto ticket, I'm good. Be careful. Slippery slope. I'm just giving you fair warning. How about drugs? How about alcohol abuse? Cults, New Age religion, and the occult. That's just a few things. Now you may say, well, those are tragic, violent opposition. But I want to remind you, but you come into this world as an enemy of God and a God-hater. I'm not making that up. The Bible says that in Ephesians 2, that you were an enemy of God. So listen, all who refuse to submit to the Lordship of Christ, all who refuse to align themselves with those who foolishly reject the authority of God, is in opposition to God. Verse 3 is the sentiment of the rebellious heart. Quickly, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. In other words, chains and fetters. Picture the yoke of a cart or a plow placed on the necks of animals for service. And this is how the world views the authority of God over their lives. We don't want any of that. Break off the chains, break off the fetters. It reminds me of Jesus when he teaches about the noble man in Luke 19, when he sends the, the nobleman in and he has servants that are supposed to take care of the mene, right? Which would be about 60 shekels. And he says, Do your business, do what you're supposed to do. And they say, Hmm, send back a message to him and tell him we will not have this man to rule over us. That is what the lost person says will not have the Lord Jesus Christ to rule over me. This is the response of an unbelieving heart. So there is an opposition. There is an antithesis. There's a hostility to God and His authority and His word. Uh, let me, since I'm in the neighborhood, let me drop in. Civil religion is not America's hope. This means a religion that looks for the least common denominator that can unite all of us together in some kind of real nice religious coalition. The reality is civil religion is hostile toward God because it is hostile to the rule of God in our lives. Right? So civil religion is still religion of the will of the people, not the will of God. The will of God is this. I have put my king on his throne. That's the will of God. And the only way you can ever be saved is through this king who's on his throne. It's the only way. So, conspirers appear brilliant in the eyes of the world. But they're empty heads trying to conspire against the Lord of heaven. As the creatures seek to overthrow God's reign, verse 4 tells you how God responds. He just laughs. He laughs. So second, see the Lord scoff at those who think so little 
of him. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What is he sitting upon? A throne, isn't he? Do you see this as juxtaposition against those little peon earthly people on earth? And David saying, our God is on his throne. If that's not enough, in the heavens. Do you see the difference? Here are these pipsqueaks on earth. They're raising their fist against God, the God of heaven. They don't want this man to rule over them. They want the shackles removed and the restraints. We want to be free. And here we have the true king, the ruler of the world, who sits in the heavens and laughs. This is the absolute sovereign whose rule is unrivaled. And he looks at these ten pot rulers of the nations, and he does something. He laughs. The Hebrew word is Adonijah scoffs at them. It's pure derision of their empty pride. You do know that the guy in North Korea sets himself up as an object of worship. They have three pictures in their homes, and they must, and they must declare that they legally worship him. Mm. We might think this kind of thing died with the Caesars, but it's alive and well today. Here's this little man demanding worship, and the God of heaven scoffs at the ridiculousness of such a person. It's not the laughter of indifference either. It is, it is the laughter and scorn in verse 4 that actually proves it's connected to the very justness and wrath of God. Let's think about how serious this is. The rebellion and the rejection of the nations is not only ridiculous to the one who's seated on the throne, but it also incites his just anger. Think of this. God does not take rebellion lightly or rejection of his king lightly. What is his response? As for me, I've installed my king. Mm. You can rail all you want to, and, and I'll laugh and scoff at you and put you in derision because my king's already on the hill. I've already placed him. Remember, there's no temple at this point. Zion sings, right? There's no temple. It's not, David's not even going to build it. Only Solomon. But God has put his king on his cosmic hill, the hill of Zion. So this is the invincible act of a sovereign God who once he does something, no one can turn his hand back. This is what God has done. God's answer to the rebellion of the nations is nothing other than to install the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, as the king. So let the nations rage. Right? In verses 7 through 9, we get the king. We get God's king. I will tell of the decree. Y'all think that's pretty clear? God makes decrees. Are y'all listening? This is a decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in the pieces like a potter's vessel. So here we have the folly. Utter folly. Of those who arrail against him. And then we have the Lord's response of, of, of mocking and laughing at their conspiring work. And then we see the decree of the Lord, a reminder of who he's put on his throne. 
Uh, a lot of scholars would remind us that this is the kind of a repetition of the Davidic covenant. Are y'all familiar with that? This means you have, all right, stretch, stay alive. I don't want you to start off with a sermon like this and go, all right? Listen all the way through. The decree of the Father is, you are my son. Now, is this not a wonderful Trinitarian council hall conversation? You understand this is the Father talking to the Son. Sounds like Hebrews 10. I'm not going to preach that yet. But in the volume of the book it is written of me, I have come to do thy will, O God, a body you have prepared for me. I mean, here's the Son of God talking to the Father before he's made an infant and before he condescends to earth. Here's a conversation when the Father is saying to the Son something about a coronation or being begotten. So, David will hear these words from Nathan, a prophet, in 2 Samuel 7, 4 and verse 14. But David would understand these words as going to his descendant. David is presenting the promised king from his line. And the sonship language suggests that the king has taken up the role of Adam, the son of God. Don't confuse it. We're not talking about the original Adam, made from the dust of the earth. We're talking about what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians. Because in Genesis 5, 1 through 3, he is called a son of God. Adam is. I don't think Adam did too well. Are y'all listening? I don't, have to, I don't have time to trace all of this down. But the Messiah who's put upon the hill will succeed where Adam failed. He'll also succeed where the entire nation of Israel failed. Jesus fulfills the office of royal son and the image bearer of the last Adam. So this is distinct from eternal sonship. In other words, when you hear, uh, I have begotten you, don't think for a skinny minute that that means that Jesus was created. He wasn't created. There's never been a time when the Son of God did not exist. So begotten is different terminology. It's more like adoption. It's more like I sent you on a mission and you accomplished it, thus you are the king. It's an announcement of who he is. So although he possessed complete equality with the Father for all eternity, and if you deny that, you're not a Christian. All right? He had to attain this sonship likeness or royal image on behalf of the co-heirs. Adam failed. In other words, he had to succeed precisely where Adam failed. And there's an important sense in which Jesus Christ was adopted by the Father as Son only after his active and passive obedience, not as, as eternal Son, he's always been that, but as the covenant servant who fulfilled everything the Father asked him to do. When the Father says to the Son, you are my Son, what an awesome relationship that existed for all eternity between the Father and the Son. But when you see that word begotten, that's an interesting thought. What does it mean? We could say it's the incarnation because the Father did not become Christ. The Son did, the second person of the Trinity. So what does the New Testament say about that? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, when you get over to the New Testament, what is expressly and clearly given to us is that it has something to do with the resurrection. It has something to do with the fact that Christ not only validated who he was by his glorious resurrection, he also vindicated the work of the Father. So, everybody thoroughly confused? 
in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ and what we could say today when you see that term I have begotten you first remember that Jesus Christ is eternally the son of the father right he's eternally the son of the father however he entered and identified into this world with us Hebrews 2 says it was a necessity that he identify with us and so the New Testament does not use the phrase begotten here's what you have in Acts chapter 13 turn fast quick 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 all right, Acts chapter 13, verse 33, listen. This parallel, by the way, is also in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. You stay where you are and listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Listen clearly. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. There was a declaration that came when Christ came forth from the grave. And this is what Psalm 2 is talking about. Furthermore, Acts 13, verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this is this he has fulfilled to us through, through their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead... No more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. This is another psalm. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Which that's speaking of what? You can go check out David's grave right now. And if you dig it up, you're going to find his bones. Not so with Christ. He will not see corruption. So Christ has always been the sovereign king. He's always been the eternal son. In the incarnation, the one who was eternal God takes on humanity and becomes a human. So in one person, he's the absolute ruling and reigning person of the Godhead. And that never stopped when he left heaven. When he's nursing from Mary's breast, he's still the eternal son of God who is upholding all things, Colossians 1, by the word of his power. And as he comes into this world, he lives 33 years in the form of a servant he comes into the obedience all the way to the point of death, even death on the cross. And once he offers himself up as our sacrifice for sin, lays down his life, the Father raises him up, and it's in that act of resurrection from the dead that he enters into a new status. He is the resurrected king. That's his status. The resurrection of Christ is not only vindication, it's also validation. Why? You ever heard of coronation? Where did the king go? He ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. What a coronation. He rules over all. So, as Jesus said to this to his disciples, and please never minimize it. Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me. Have you ever noticed that he says this after he's just walked out of the grave? All authority has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And remember, I'm with you always. Don't minimize those words. So by virtue of Jesus' resurrection, God puts him in the position of reigning king slash son. Eternal glory slash son. He is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament anticipated as David's son. 
He promises in Psalm 16 and Psalm 22 that it will come to fulfillment through the resurrection. So this is not an issue of eternal begottenness. We could, always, we could argue about those things in theology. This is an issue of resurrection and exaltation because of what Christ has accomplished. You have to love verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. That's verse 9. But you have to love verse 8. When's the last time you read Revelation 5, 9? Boy, isn't that good? When all the angels are proclaiming, you've saved from every tribe and nation, every tongue. You've saved people from every area of the world. That's what our God has done. For the sake of time, let me read Revelation eleven fifteen. Don't turn, just listen. Here's what the word says. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Awesome. And of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Not he's going to reign. He reigns right now. And then we see this warning uh, of him with an iron rod in his hand. As the Almighty, as he shatters a pot in verse 9. Do you know there's three times that this is actually used in the, in the New Testament. All in the book of Revelation. Chapter 2, verse 26 through 27. That's a future promise when it talks about an iron rod. And you're going to share in that glory. You're going to share in that with him if you're saved. That's, that's Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation 12, verse 5, it's used again. And I think that refers to his present reign right now. Okay? You reign with him. He has a present reign right now. But when you get to Revelation 19, the pot clay imagery is used again. An iron rod. And that's referring to his second coming. His future judgment of the nations. So how do I see verse 9? You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That is the already and the not yet. He already reigns, people. But one of these days, the not yet will be fulfilled. That's what the Bible teaches. I don't know what your eschatology is. I don't know what you believe about the end times. Some of us probably are pan-alinealist. Everything's going to pan out in the end, right? There's all kind of millennial views out there. But here's what I can tell you. I don't know, I'm not sure what your eschatology is. But be optimistic because Jesus has already won. Be optimistic, right? He reigns. Finally, here's an invitation. See the warning and the gospel invitation. Isn't God merciful to give an invitation? To even those kings who conspire against him and rulers and, and even you maybe this morning. In your lost condition and you're opposing the word of God and you're opposing Christ and here he gives us merciful invitation. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. In light of everything that's been said, right? I put you in derision. I laugh. I scoff. I put my king on the holy hill. He's coming with a rod to shatter a pot that has no nothing he can do whatsoever in the face of a rod, iron, uh, an iron rod. What, what can a piece of clay do? In the midst of all of that, use some discernment. And bow before him. Think with wisdom. So, in light of the future judgment from God's anointed, 
take to heart the future judgment that you will face for rejecting him and get off the path of rebellion. This is a warning. It's an act of grace. The warning is a word of mercy. In our day, we think if we give a warning on sin, we're being judgmental and biased. But the Bible thinks differently. The Bible is going to tell you the truth. And when it does, it's being merciful to you. God is being gracious to tell you this. It's not merciful to coddle people in their rebellion. Did y'all hear that? It's not merciful at all. As a matter of fact, it's evil. It's wrong to coddle people in their rebellion. It's cruel and unmerciful, in fact, to tell someone just to live and let go, stay on the path of wickedness without giving them any warning. If you do this, you're adding to their self-delusion. Listen to verse 10. So here's what you should do. Now therefore, be, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. The NAS says worship the Lord. The ESV says serve the Lord with fear. Serve the Lord with fear, with discernment, heeding the warning. Worship the Lord with fear. Fear is not a bad thing, it's a good thing, right? Holy reverence for who he is. You say it in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven. Yes, that means you're set apart as holy. There's reverential fear to who he is. The call in verse 11 is clear, stop rebelling. Lay down your arms. You can be a 10-year-old boy and a rebel against God. Lay down your arms. You can be an 18-year-old boy or girl and be a rebel against God. You can be a sweet little 7-year-old girl and be a rebel against God. This touches all ages. The call is to stop the hostility. Stop the hostility. Stop rebelling against the God of heaven who sits in heaven enthroned as king. Worship him with reverence. If you have helps in the margins of your reading, like the NAS says worship, but this text says serve him, and it says to do so with fear. The fear of the Lord in the Bible is the soul, S-O-U-L, of godliness. The fear of the Lord. Fear in the Bible can be summarized as a simple recognition of the character of God, who he is, and who I am in light of who he is. That's real fear. Give the Lord the honor and glory that's due his name. Then it says, rejoice with trembling. Does that sound strange to anybody? Rejoice, yet you do so with trembling. Is this not an awesome responsibility before an infinitely holy God? The vein of modern religion is a domesticated Christ. Is that not true? He doesn't frighten anyone. I recall to you in the lion the witch and the wardrobe when Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and Lucy and Susan are addressing Aslan. And they're talking about how awesome and massive and, and Lucy says, well, is he a man? <laughs> Miss Beaver says, oh, no, he's not just a man. And then uh, Lucy says, well, is he safe? And there's interchange more about who he is and his character and his person. And then there is this response by Beaver. Anyone who can appear before Aslam without knees knocking is either silly or lost their minds. Then he isn't safe, said Mrs. Mr. So he isn't safe, said Mr. Beaver. 
No one ever said anything about him being safe. He's not safe at all, but he's good. That's the benevolent God here. He's the king, and in his fury, you will be disintegrated. And yet, he is good, and he is merciful. Listen, folks, he is not safe. Throw out the thoughts of a domesticated Jesus. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is massively holy. I don't have the words to explain what the Bible says he is. Don't, don't go down that road at all. B.B. Warfield says, This is not an attitude of despair. It's not one of depression. It's not one of hesitation or doubt. Hope is even too weak of a word to apply here. And that's why it says rejoice with trembling. He says, this is an attitude of exultant joy. Only this joy has its ground, not in ourselves, but in our Savior. We are sinners, and we know ourselves to be sinners, lost and helpless in ourselves, but we are saved sinners. It is our salvation that gives us the tone in our life of rejoicing yet trembling. It's a tone of joy that swells in exact proportion to the sense we all have of our own ill Desert. What is he saying? What is B.B. Warfield saying? He's saying our joy in Christ will be in direct proportion to our understanding of what we really deserve at the hand of this holy judge, and yet he gave you mercy. And yet, that, that's rejoice with trembling. That's what that is. So worship with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. And kiss the Son. The idea of submission to the Son of God is seeing Him as a lover of your soul and then kneeling before Him, no longer in rebellion, but in sweet submission to this kind rulership from this benevolent King. So, I saw Sovereign Grace put out a song in 2000. And, oh, I can't remember. Let's see. It's called, You Have Captured Me. Steve and Vicki Cook put it out. There's a grace I can't resist. Loving arms are drawing me, and there is a beauty far beyond what eyes of flesh could ever see. For I beheld with trembling joy the sight of Calvary's scarlet rose. <sighs> to look at the cross, you do so with trembling joy, don't you? You do so. You do it with trembling joy. So here's the final part. Ready? So kiss the sun. Oh, is he a domesticated Jesus? Well, this text says, lest he become angry and you perish in your way. That's serious. That is catastrophic. That, you can't get any more serious than that. So kiss the son. Lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Kiss the son. What is the kiss? Well, it's a sign of love. It's a sign of willing obedience. It's a sign of submission. We adore Christ. Amen? Kiss the Son. I don't know what you think about this, but don't you long in the future to bow before the one who died for you? I won't just kiss his hand. I'll kiss his feet. He's the one who died, who bought you with his Blood. The Bible in Revelation speaks of this. So, to refuse to kiss the Son is to refuse to submit to Him. 
And it's, and it's to invite disaster upon yourself. The text says, lest he become angry and you perish in your way. Folks, this is gospel preaching from Psalm 2. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. You, what you may interpret as bondage that they want to cast off, this text says that's where your security is. They're saying cast off his fetters and his chains, but this text says there is no refuge outside of Christ. Hear me, church, to think for a moment that you can take refuge. Did not the prophet say this at the destruction of Jerusalem? You're going to be looking to cry out for the stones to fall upon your head, but you're not going to have safety. Imagine in the days to come the judgment of the Son of God. And you're going to be crying out for a place to take refuge. But the only place to take refuge is not from the Son, but in the Son. Take refuge in the Son. Direct command for us. The cross of Jesus Christ is the kiss of the Son of God for you. Let's flip this around. We're going to celebrate this tonight at the Blessed Lord's Supper. When you hold up the cup and the bread, that is what you're celebrating. The kiss of the Son of God who died for you. So shame on you for not participating in the Lord's Supper. You're welcome. I mean, I'm plowing right next to the corn in the sermon anyway. I might as well just plow right over a few stalks. When we fail to participate in the Lord's Supper, you're not celebrating that kiss from the Son of God. It's the tender kiss of God's saving mercy. Receive that kiss today, folks. Turn and trust Christ. Martin Luther said this, The Psalter ought to be a precious and beloved book because it promises Christ's death and resurrection so clearly. I don't know what you expected from the preacher in Psalm 2, but I hope you got Jesus, right? I hope you understood that this is Luther again. There is great force then in the word kiss. For it indicates that we should embrace this son with our whole heart. And see or hear nothing else than Christ and him crucified. But whoever looks for something else in religion. Or seeks something higher will deceive himself. And wander from the way of salvation. What a glorious king we have. He's a holy judge as well. He's a mighty Savior. Take refuge in Him. How do you respond to a love like this? How do you respond to a God who would love you like this? Isaac Watts put it this way. Were the whole realm of nature mine That were a present Far too small, love, sing it, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's your response to him. Kiss the son. Take refuge in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I know the hour is late. I know we've been expositing this text and deeply in Psalm 2. But, oh, Father, may your people not miss the message. For Christians, Lord, let us be resolved in our hearts and minds to be optimistic in this world because our King 
is on his throne. He rules. He reigns now and he will reign forevermore. Your divine purpose cannot be stopped. Lord, one of these days, we won't have war against you. There won't be any of that. But in the meantime, Lord, opposition is still in this world. And Lord, may the kings and rulers hear the warning to kiss the son. Take refuge in him. Lord, for lost people, under the sound of my voice, to be lost is to be an enemy of God. Lord, may they throw down their arms today. Their arms are way too short to box with you. Lord, may they yield themselves to the king. The one who, with a kiss of love, died for them on the cross. Lord, help them to turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing, Just As I Am. Just as I am without one This week, I got a phone call that one of my former church members had passed away. Her name was Betty Willingham. Her husband, his name is Mr. Jerry. And I remember distinctly my first year at Cropwell Baptist Church, one of my deacons came to me and he said this, Pastor, I think Mr. Jerry's ready to trust Christ. And I, I asked a couple of questions and I knew Miss Betty was active in our church and I saw Mr. Jerry there all the time with her in church. And it, I was kind of bum-fuzzled a little bit. I said, well, if one of my guys says someone needs to trust Christ, I'm in. I went to Mr. Jerry's house. And here's a man who had been around church his whole life. Heard the gospel declared so many times. Here's a man who just wilted at the word of God. Got on his knees and trusted Christ. Submitted himself to Christ. And I fear that there's some in this church body who have been just like Mr. Jerry. Signing all the notes, hitting church membership, roll call. I'm, I'm, I'm a member of FBCO and I'm on, way, on my way to heaven. Here's the question. Are you opposing Christ? Are you standing in opposition for him being the ruler of your life? That means he's the boss, kids. Put it on your level. He's the ruler. He's the boss. He's Lord. You don't have to be... Oh, I started... Uh, let me don't go down that road it's quite yet. You don't have to be, what's his name? The dude in North Korea? You don't, you don't have to be him to be opposing Christ. If you're lost, you're in opposition. Yield to him. One more verse. Let's sing. Just as I am, Lord, tossed about with men. 
Well, glory to the Lord. Amen. Glad you were here today. Tonight, we will take part in the Lord's Supper. Pregnant with Paul's Lord's Supper tonight, right? That's just figure of speech for me emphasizing Lord's Supper tonight. All right? And then Blake is going to give us kind of a rundown of Love Thy Neighbor this week, and I look forward to that, and I hope you do. So hope you'll be back with us tonight at 530. All right? I know that's not a normal. Fourth Sunday night, we usually don't meet, but, okay, we are meeting tonight. So I hope and pray you will take part in that service. All and right? 430 and uh, 4 o'clock in meeting room A and B for the witness training. That's right. right? Amen. If you want to be a part of that. God bless you. Have God a wonderful bless. day. Have a great day.